I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I should preface what I'm saying by saying that I'm actually a historian and an academic, so if I'm more pedantic and boring than the other speakers, you'll know what to, <laughs> to blame it on. So, um, nice pedantic opening. The, the, the way Italians tend to write, or let's, let's write, because Italy has some very, very interesting and innovative and authoritative historians of their own cuisine, but the way that Italians themselves tend to visualise the history of their own cuisine tends to be very often through stories about individual dishes. The stories they tell about those dishes are mostly complete cobblers, but they are all the same very important stories because they're identity narratives, essentially. Just picking a random example, in Venice, they, a thing called bacala, which is, is actually what they call stockafiso, stockfish elsewhere. Confusingly, they use the wrong name for this. You, you, it's even used in producers' publicity and stuff. There is a 14th, sorry, 15th century traveler's account by this poor Venetian sailor who, whose name escapes me for the moment who got shipwrecked somewhere off Ireland and amazingly ended up in Norway and told the whole story. He was, his, book was, uh, his story was collected in a book of traveller's tales. became a very famous story. And he gives us the first Italian account of stockfish hanging up to dry in the cold winds of Norway. I don't know if you're familiar with the process. And it's big, you know, stockfish is one of those signature dishes. It's popular in Reggio, Calabria, Messina, and various other places. They light onto that and think, that's how we began. Our tradition of stockfish eating goes all the way back to then, and a line of continuity was established. What an ancient tradition, how venerable our eating habits are. The fact is, if you read the account by that traveller, okay, yes, he got some stockfish, but he sold it at the first port he came to in Norway to buy some boots so that he could get back home. And the next reports, all the historical reports of stockfish after that, tell us how disgusting it was. And that it was basically a, a lean day food. You know, the church divided 
divided the diet into lean days and fat days. And so it's something you, you ate when you had to. Much, much later, it became cuisine. It became food. It became something that people told stories about and built their identities around. So in many ways, it's a lot easier to tell the story of that powerful local identification with food, which is really one of the signature traits of Italian food culture, than it is to trace the history of individual dishes. Very quickly, the other myth, of course, is Marco Polo and pasta. Pasta was around 150, in Italy 150 years before Marco Polo was born. Marco Polo, however, didn't bring, so he didn't bring pasta into Italy, but he did bring it into the United States of America, which is a remarkable achievement for somebody from the 14th century. Because the story about him traveling to China and bringing back sp spaghetti was invented in the late 1920s by the Macaroni Manufacturers Association of the United States, who at the time, it, they were all Italians, obviously. Well, the, the guy invented it was probably Calabrian, in fact. And, <laughs> and they, they were desperate to sell their spaghetti, to break out of the Italian ghettos and sell their spaghetti. So they had to de-Italianize it in some way. And this was the objective of this story, was to make pasta seem a bit like, less like a kind of Dago food. Um, and uh, anyway, that's how that story takes off. So beware these little individual narratives about individual foods. They're almost all wrong. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Francesco and uh, Katie, um, obviously, Francesco from his childhood in, in, in Calabria and um, Katie from her long stint in Rome and so on and, and her research for her book. What are, the, what are the gastronomic gifts that the invaders, people who invaded Italy, left behind? Maybe we can start with, with Calabria. Because I've heard you say to me, you told me the story of Anduja, <coughs> yeah. um, how in, in popular culture it's, it's thought that it it's somehow related to the Napoleon and the French, but there's another school of thought that maybe links it to Spain. So, well, there is quite, quite a lot, not no only in the food, but on the demographic as well. Uh, if you see, for example, if you talk about Nduja, the world itself, I mean, the real word for Nduja is Nduja, which she reminds you d'Anduille Francaise, the French Anduille. So there is a, they say there is Napoleon Bonaparte, the brother-in-law called Joaquino Murat, I think. Mm. That's, uh, he was there in uh, Pizzo, in Obea, <coughs> fighting, and he did want something which he tastes like in the Francais. So the Calabrese came up with this recipe on Nduja, just for to see the French. But if you see, for example, in Calabria, we only grow um, black pigs. If you, think of black, if you talk about black pigs, they, you think about Spain. But in Calabria, black pig is the pig you grow, and you give them a corn, and you kill it with your hand, by the way. If you see like uh, pipe patate, which is the uh, peppers and potatoes, you think about Spain, but it's a Calabrese. If you look at me, for example, I don't look Italian, I look like a Greek or Moroccan because they're the Arabs, the Turks, the Ottomans. That's why I'm right around, you correct me if I'm wrong. That's why the, the, the sweet and sour or the Moorish influence we have in our food. So, if you see, because if you see the geographic the position of Calabria, it's called like, uh, I'm not going to say this in English, I say in Italian, la puttana del mezzogiorno. <laughs> everyone can there, I mean, everyone had a bit of land, but a bit of space there. And, you know, um, uh, after many, 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 many years, thousand years, now we got this beautiful, the beautiful treasure, this beautiful power 
the food, the South Italian cooking. I mean, if you, if you think about Italian cuisine, you usually do not associate this to spicy food, are you? Spicy food, you think about Thai, Indian, and in Calabria South, we eat a lot of spicy food. Because we had this whole invasion, all these people teach us how to, how, to, how to eat. And it was not just the way we eat, the way, to, the, the way we preserve, okay, the way we cook, and, and all the rest. So this, 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 this what's, this what's a, is a very particular and different about South Italia. Uh, Sicily, Calabria, Puglia, uh, Basilicata, Sardinia. If you talk about fregola, for example, you ever heard about fregola? It's a kind of small couscous, toasted couscous. So it's not an Italian thing, but in Sardinia, it's one of the main dishes. If you talk about cucciata, you heard about cucciata? It's a Sicilian couscous. There is a, 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 there is a, a festival in Erice. Which they, they, who does the best couscous? Cous. It is a, one of the, you know, one of your Sunday dish. See, so the, all this shows that Italy, uh, South Italy. That's why I want to say in my book as well. It's got still a lot to show, and Italy or South Italy is not only about pizza and pasta, but it's a lot more to give away. It's, it's also um, interesting that um, the Germanic tribes, uh, which I think the Romans called barbarians, um, are, are actually responsible for meat curing. They brought in. Um, the techniques which now produce prosciutto di parma, culatello, all the things that we hopefully all love. I think you've had some, some tonight. Um, so that's, that's an amazing gift um, that, was, that was left to uh, what is now modern Italy. But uh, Katie, Rome, what did you discover? Oh, so, so many things. Um, and if you've been to Rome or if you've studied Roman cuisine, um, you would be familiar with some of the dishes which we consider like truly, truly Roman. Many of them are dating back 50 years or others 500 years. Um, but I think the most interesting feature of Roman cuisine and one that is really fascinates me to no end is the idea of the, the Roman Jewish cuisine, which we sort of describe using the singular, la cucina romana ebraica, but it's so many cuisines under one umbrella of a very small community, which was over 50,000 members in antiquity, and today's about 13,000. And when we talk about sort of contemporary cuisine in Italy, we tend to be talking about cuisine that is 15 or 50 years old, whereas the sort of cucina ebraica as we know it, um, which is still preserved in homes, and to some extent in a few restaurants in the Jewish ghetto, um, we've got dishes that are not just indigenous to that particular 22 century long presence of Jews in Rome, but uh, more likely arrived in the 1490s when Jews were expelled from southern Italy, which included Sicily, Calabria, and then several decades later, uh, Naples as well. Um, if you visit this fantastic um, bakery called Boccione Forno di Ghetto, which is right on the main street in the, the modern ghetto, of course, the Jewish ghetto, which was established in 1555 and ended in 1870, no longer survives. The buildings are gone, but you still have places that are dedicated to continuing the culinary traditions of the community. And at Bocchone, you find um, marzipan cookies. Um, you find a type of pizza, pizza ebraica. Um, it's a sweet uh, dough um, into which pine nuts, raisins, candied fruits um, are incorporated. Um, flavor palette and um, sort of uh, a, a visual um, type of thing that, that evokes Sicilian desserts. Um, and so we have this fabulous contamination of what perhaps at the time of the arrival of these Sephardic Jews from Spain would have been called invaders, uh, but, but which have been fully assimilated into the, the Roman Jewish cuisine and plenty of 
15th and 16th century documents tell of Jews arriving from the south of Italy and Spain and their traditions being adopted. Um, to enrich the community even further, in 1967, about 4,000 Jews arrived in Rome from Libya. And today, a 13,000 member community is about one-third uh, Libyan Sephardic. And so right beside the deep-fried artichokes of the ghetto, you find pasta that's cooked with um, botarga, um, dried mullet brown, things that are typical of that North African Sephardic cuisine. I think uh, Rome is an interesting segue for my next question, which is to John, really. What, why are so many dishes that we all know named after cities? Uh, yeah, um, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. Um, I, well, it's not just my hobby horse, that, to, to be fair. It, this is basically the um, central thesis, if you like. Uh, there's a kind of academic consensus about this amongst food historians. I think Gianni Rebora, the, the Genoese food historian, was the first one to put it forward in the kind of 50s and 60s, is that basically the main motor of Italian food culture through the ages has been cities. We mistakenly and bafflingly in some ways, given you know, what the peasants themselves might have thought of us, tend to think of Italian food as being peasant food, uh, that being its defining characteristic. And it's simply not true. Um, there, there's countless historical documents that tell us that the peasants ate very, very badly as recently as the fascist era, there were many people in government were extremely worried that the peasants didn't know how to feed themselves properly. You know, they didn't even know how to use the little they had. There are undoubtedly elements of the great mosaic of uh, Italian cuisine that have peasant origins, but it's really urban food traditions that are that have created Italian food culture. They've been the kind of poles that have, of, of expertise, of resources, of markets. You know, that's where all of these ingredients from the hinterland of Italy's cities were concentrated, where the, the cooks went, where there was competition for social prestige, where ideas were exchanged in, in food as in, is, as in anything else. That's why this business of naming cities acquiring a reputation for certain foods began in the Middle Ages when the Italian city system re-emerged, reasserted its political and economic uh, independence and primacy. And very early on, you get a kind of form of urban branding. You know, Parmigiano is the, perhaps the, the classic example or you know pavia known for what is now grana um, and there are lots and lots of other examples because they were the cities were selling their wares to each other in a kind of trade system and so it made sense and, and guilds and people formed to protect that brand identity of the food there are famous that you can see now if you ever go to a sort of mortadella stall at slow food or something like that. You'll see these famous sort of uh, 15th, 16th century bandy, these laws put up that determine the quality of mortadella and stuff like that because they were protecting their, the reputation of their product collectively as a, as a city guild. If you look at the recipe, it's actually quite different. There's a lot more spices than now, but that, that doesn't stop people, of course, building a great 
you know, tradition around it. So that's the, that's the main... Uh, that's the main reason, and it's, you know, that's why in my history of Italian food, I used a sort of stepping stone approach to go from the Middle Ages to the present day, taking cities as my stepping stones through the time. Because that's, that's apart from being a motor Italian food, it's also a great place to stand and watch Italian history go by, and Italian food history as well, from the cities. Francesco, what, what about this concept of uh, cucina povera that people talk about. I mean, in Calabria, you know, bread was made with <coughs> chestnuts. Was that because they thought chestnuts was the best thing, or was that because it was the only thing they could make bread with it sometimes? I think the second one, because don't, it was definitely the only thing. <coughs> cucina povera was basically everything you find on soil, everything you find, you know, without paying for it, really. I remember my grandmother telling me the story about grano azzo, or stroncatura. You know, when you grain your grain on your mills and then the leftover, the burn part, which she goes around, it used to be for the poor people. They used to make uh, cavatelli or ricchette out of it. And it was like one of the best things you, you can have it. If you go and buy now this grano arso, it's probably three times the price of, mm. the, of normal flour. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, so now it's becoming like a, it's like buying in Barlotti beans now. Barlotti beans was like Cicerchi, buy like a Barlotti or Cicerchi. Mm. Barlotti from Lamon is about eighteen pound a kilo. <laughs> I can buy a big fillet for it. That was cucina povera, which comes back now. Mm. But what I'm, I'm trying to say, and also my book, cucina povera is basically a mama cooking. It's a bit like, a, without being too confusing, like a dieta mediterranea. This way, all come from. I mean, it was like vegetables, uh, chicoria, uh, chestnuts, all the stuff you really find without paying for it. All things that you used to exchange, for example. When you used to do bread at home, the mother east, Vimito mother, used to be exchanged from one family to another every single week. Okay, every single week the bread we used to make from his family first, then her family, then your family. And you know what? With that, the same ingredient, the same quality of stuff, the same mother east, the bread tastes completely different. That was the greatness about Cucina Povera. That was the greatness about being in, uh, in Mezzogiorno, in south of Italy. Thank you, Francesco. Uh, Katie, looking at Rome, did, did you find that uh, different classes were eating different food? Or was there some universal food? Or? Uh, there certainly was some universal food, and, uh, but there, when, we, when we talk about the Cucina Povera and its application as a phrase in Rome, today we're talking about it in almost exclusively a marketing sense. Today we go to um, fabulous restaurants in Testaccio um, to dine on the Cucina Povera for 65 euros a head without wine. Um, and so there's this great nostalgia for a past that many people in Rome never did experience, um, but one that has great, uh, great traction. I think when we when we talk about the Cucina Povera historically, let's say in the in the 19th and 20th centuries, we're speaking of. Um, we're often speaking of a, a cuisine that's not native to Rome, but one that was arriving with immigrants from Abruzzo or Calabria or what is city, Basilicata. People desperately impoverished who were fleeing the South, who were not able to go to the United States or other places after unification, and were truly living off of foraged foods, whereas many established Romans were purchasing things in markets or had proper housing um, versus the, many of the immigrants who were, who were living in makeshift hovels. Um, and you can even walk down the Via del Mandrione today and see the, the legacy of, of the, the homes of Pugliesi and 
uh, Calabrian peasants who were living in this area were still, we have spontaneous plants growing everything from mallow and arugula um, to cardoons at times, things that people truly were living on in, in this true manifestation of the Cucina Povera, which today is, of course, completely transformed. It's, well, I'll just say, I mean, uh, there's some they did some research uh, in the 30s when they were trying to find out what the hell was going on in the peasant world. Um, and they estimated that a peasant woman, housewife is a, probably an inappropriate term because women were part of the workforce. But it takes four hours a day to manage a house which doesn't have electricity, doesn't have uh, running water, uh, where you're cooking on a, an open fire. Can we call that cucina? You know, in, 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 the, his, in the terms of historical, uh, historical peasantry, yeah, they were very, very good at getting by on what they could, could have and what they did. But it's maybe, I, I, I agree with you, it's maybe a little bit patronizing in our sort of, you know, gastronomic way to talk about it as a, as a cucina in, in that sense. Only if you extract it from that context and make it part of our delicious, highly varied menu you know, does it come to seem different and interesting and, and nice? You know, what, what I, I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's, it would uh, baffle those peasants who were tiny because they didn't have enough protein, who were, had, you know, pelagra if they, they lived in the, this vitamin deficiency disease because they lived on polenta in the northeast. Uh, and it, I think it's B12 that they didn't get, and it comes all kinds of caused all kinds of horrors. You know, I, part of me thinks if we use this modern term, but then I'm a historian, so um, I, I'm more prone to feel guilty about people in the past. <laughs> well, um, Katie, Katie uh, touched on, on, the, on the, the word marketing there, which I think is quite interesting. And um, I, I think one of the best illustrations or in the sort of modern era of, of marketing applied to food myths, if you like, is is the Molino Bianco story, and I, I, I think it'd be really good if you could just share that with us. Well, this nostalgia that Italians have for rustic food, for peasant food, for cucina povera, which has achieved many, many great things, um, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of it myself, is um, itself has a history. And it's really only when Italians leave the countryside behind. Italy has a very delayed passage into an era of a high-protein diet and an industrial economy. It really only happens after the Second World War in the 1950s. That poverty is a relatively recent historical memory. Um, and it's only when the countryside had safely been left behind that you start to get rustic nostalgia and the brand that really encapsulates that is Il Mulino Bianco, the, the biscuits. You, you, if you've been to Italy you must, you must have seen them. And They were originally sold in sort of brown paper bags it, and they were deliberately industrially manufactured in slightly irregular shapes like they'd been homemade. There's amazing irony <laughs> to that. But they, they took off enormously following this highly successful advertising campaign that everybody in Italy can remember, and it's still, you see the elements of it, they still play off it, set in this mill in a place called Chiusdino, uh, not far from Siena, 
which was supposed to be the incarnation of the happy, rustic life. We need to be a bit aware of it, because Italians are as vulnerable as anybody else to the idea that everything was lovely and happy and foods were all genuine in the past and stuff like that. I mean, one problem that we underestimate about the past of Italian food is the amount of fraud that went on. You see all the, you know, the historical records, all these food frauds, you know, all kinds of horrors sold as cheese and God knows what else. You know, the, the, thank God for modern regulations and legislation exactly. on that matter, yeah. Anyway, there's, there's a nostalgia there that we, which is in a way great because it's the driving force of some fantastic rediscoveries and reinterpretations of the past. But it, it, it's not history. Um, I'd, li I'd, I'd like to, um, to talk about another interesting thing regarding Italian food culture, which is how recipes themselves are so essentially contested at hyper-local, local, regional, national level, and so on. And uh, I asked Francesco and, and Katie really to illustrate. I mean, my, my memory is of some relatives of mine warning me not to talk to certain neighbours because they used prezzemolo in the minestra, you know, and, God and that alone, so, sorry, parsley, you know, so they put parsley in the soup, don't talk to them, these are bad people. <laughs> just, to me, it was a bit of a shock, but um, maybe you can think of some... Well, to be honest with you, there is, a, there is a, something we say in Calabria, it's a pitrosino di minestra. That means you put parsley everywhere you want. <laughs> it sounds very tight, I have to say. But no, you say it's very inter interesting. Um, just to, go to, to uh, catch up with what uh, John was saying before, um, you know, sometimes when you think about spaghetti meatballs, you think about an Italian dish. It is not. When you think about fettuccine alfredo, you think it's an Italian dish. It is not. When you think about Caesar salad, you know he's American. Mm. <laughs> so this this is a great thing. This 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 is why Italy is so beautiful. This is why Italy is so versatile. That's why Italy we never agreed on anything. It is still reflects this mm. politics. I mean, if I ask you where Tiramisu is from, Katie, where do you think is Tiramisu from? Is it Italian? The north? What do we think is Sicilian? Really? I thought there were two two <laughs> restaurants that we, 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 fighting we can, out somewhere in Lombardy for the parentage of it. If I talk yeah. with my mum, I say, Mum, this is the way we do cavatelli. I go to my hands, ah, your mum, she doesn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, the things that really, really upset me more is uh, when people say, especially in the UK, forget about what they say. Uh, oh, of course, I can do a bowl of pasta. Anyone can do a bowl of pasta. So what I'm doing here. Even a pasta or a pizza is a gourmet dish if you follow an Italian. Oh, pasta then is not good. No, it's good for you because we're Italians and we, we tell you how to do it in the right way. Okay? So and these things sometimes they make me quite annoyed. About, oh, everybody can do pasta. Ah, everybody can do ah, pasta and pizza. But, well, mm. you know what? Italy is not only about pasta and pizza. It's about sandwich, it's about mezzogiorno, it's about north, it's about salami. That's why I think. Italy's got this big power, and there's a lot more we can give away. Mm. Lots more to give you guys, because uh, there is uh, the regionality, there is the family, there is all, everything. The only problem we've got is that we never agree to anything. So we find a way to agree mm. from north and south. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what people underestimate, is you know, that when we talk about food exclusively through traditions, we forget how 
innovative and creative Italian food culture is. You know, ciabatta was invented in the 1980s by an entrepreneur from Verona, I think. These are, you know, novelties that are coming up and, you know, learning how to use them, spreading them. Um, so Italy's a great laboratory. And, and you know, the, the, the classic answer to the, the, the question that is the title of the talk is, does Italian food exist? Of course, pasta is the classic example. Of course, Italian food equals pasta. But... Um, Italy, Italy, is, yes. Italy is a country divided by a common food. There are no Egyptian, it's a pizza, it's an Egyptian thing. Yeah. So we invented. Yeah. So what are we doing so far? I mean, if you get pizza, you think about Italian things. Just, yeah. just going back to this essentially contested thing, um, mm. Katie, there, there was recently a, a big furore over uh, uh, Bucatina Matriciana. Um, so, um, <laughs> quite well known chef uh, in the north. Reinterpreted the dish. Reinterpreted the dish, and there was a massive debate, in, uh, and including an official recipe and uh, yeah. the village or town mm. going bananas. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I'll fill you in on the details. Um, <laughs> Amatrice, which is in the northeastern part of Lazio, uh, claims ownership over the recipe Amatriciana, um, which is it's an interesting it's an interesting claim um, because it's difficult to base this in any documented historical fact. Um, and of course, when we study many recipes, especially the recipes that have been codified in the Roman canon in the, during the 20th century. Um, we find a lot of anecdotal accounts of how things came to be. Um, in, you know, in, in Amatrice, uh, if you ordered Amatrishana, at times you're served what in Rome we would call a gricha, which is pasta tossed with rendered either pancetto or guanciale fat, depending on the cook. Um, sometimes with black pepper, often with black pepper, sometimes no pepper. So, you know, when we talk about defined recipes, there's constant debate over what actually a peasant pasta dish would have included and black pepper likely would have been omitted if we believe the claim that Amatrishana is as old as, as the people of Amatrisha say. Um, in, in Rome, many, many chefs contest and said that it's a Roman dish um, that peasants coming from the Apennines after unification brought their cured pork jowls and pork bellies and various things and would use the rendered fat when dressing pasta, which at the time would not be the bucatini that we encounter today, but would have been a simple flour and water pasta, the most basic form. Um, and then it was later enriched with black pepper when that became more affordable. So what we have are a lot of a lot of claims to provenance, but no, not necessarily a, a documentary basis for those claims. What's really fun is that you can go to Amatrice for the Sagre di Amatriciana, <laughs> and you can eat it like by the kilo. Um, and, and that's been really great for Amatrice. And to go back to the original question, like what is a, what's this hyper-regionality, what's this contesting provenance all about? And you know, in modern times, food ownership has become really critical to promoting tourism, particularly in places that have, been, uh, have had their population depleted or have had their industry disappear. Um, and so it's, it's, such a complicated, it's such a complicated story, but 
I do understand the passion behind the people of Amatisha at essentially excommunicating Chef Carlo Praco. But <laughs> I think I think the point was he put onion in garlic, garlic, garlic. garlic. Okay, oh so my God. if you look at like whatever 1950s recipes, you find garlic, you find no garlic, yeah. you find onion. It, it, it reminds. For no black pepper, it's like there's so many <laughs> variations. The great thing is that Amatisha is not even in Lazio, is it? It's, it's in the provincial Rieti. Rieti, yeah. so it's Lazio then, yeah. region. Yeah. So why, I mean, usually they use uh, uh, the, the, the old version of, uh, of a Laticiano, Grigio, you know, is the onion, but the guy put garlic, they really upset them. Mm. Mm. It, it reminds me of watching, watching Jamie's Italy from behind the sofa when he, when he went down to these places and reinterpreted local dishes and, and you know, for people that was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was... But the But Katie's absolutely right here, is that this idea of that there is a canonical way of doing a dish is, is, is from the era of recipe books and, you know, uh, consumer food culture. Uh, it, it, I think it's relatively recent. I mean, you, and you can trace it. I traced it through the, the exemplary case I used is pesto, where all kinds of uh, evidence of pesto existing, and they made it with all, any kind of old stuff, you know, marjoram, parsley, as quite rightly, with pine nuts, without pine nuts, different I'm kinds of nuts, different kind of cheese. There's a raw recipe with Dutch cheese in it. I mean, you know, anything and everything. Uh, and it's really only after the Second World War that you get this, you know, canonical five ingredients going on and you start to, you know, you get traditions being invented like the World Pesto Championships. And, but but uh, ironic, ironically, having written up this about pesto, I got invited to Genoa to be a judge in the 2010 World Pesto al Mortaio Championships. Um, the, the, Really? Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't distinguish a basil leaf from a parsley leaf, so I just copied from my neighbouring judge. But the, um, <laughs> it's a it's a recent thing, and it also has economic motives, because Italy has been a huge beneficiary, and we've all been huge beneficiaries because it's improved the quality and you know, streamlined Italian food, make it, made it more exportable, more available. European Union legislation on provenance of foods, regulating that, adding value to these local products, which undoubtedly are there. There are these traditions. They get elaborated. And just, just on, um, I don't think anybody today is arguing that there is such a thing as Italian cuisine. I think probably the French are the only people who try to actually codify. It's a, you said that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it kind of fits in with the Cartesian logic to actually codify a cuisine. Yeah. Um, so you could argue there's no such thing as a cuisine, but I'm hearing that there's certainly regional dishes. And what I'd like to sort of explore now is Francesca and Katie to talk about what dishes that were regional crossed over and became national to a certain extent, where people are now eating um, dishes outside of their region. Um, I mean, pesto is probably a good example, um, but can you think of some others? Well, they, they endless. Mm. I mean, bolognese, of course, carbonara, the, the matriciana we said before. Parmigiana was national no, very, very quickly, well, very, very quickly. Well, yeah, of course, <laughs> the parmigiana, I mean, everyone, everyone mm. does now. The only problem, though, is 
you know, that the chef like me, of my caliber, I mean, I'm the smallest one anyway, we don't want to do that. We don't want to cook this anymore, which is the biggest mistake ever. What mm. we should do is, uh, I'm talking about, you know, take responsibility when I say that. A chef like Francesco Mazzei in UK is supposed to do, and I'm doing, trust me, the regional Italian cooking. You don't need me to come here and cook foie gras for you. You got already the big French guys here. You don't want me to cook like molecular. You got already the big French guy here. And because Italy's got lots to say and lots to give away, what, I'm, what, what people like me are supposed to do in the UK is get the best in season, the best ingredients, and cook the best Italian cuisine ever. And as a regional or not, we share or not, main name like Bolognese stuff, no, we're gonna put on our table, on our restaurant, the best that Italy can offer. And you know what? It's still very, very difficult in the UK. There's only few places that to have a Bolognese, you pay 30 pounds for a bowl of pasta. Mm. You, you all know that, which is crazy. And that's why some, sometimes Italian cuisine gets so difficult, so, I mean, so strange. Why a dish like uh, a curry, okay? Let's, you know, we talk about Bolognese and curry, same thing. It's gonna cost like so much rather than a normal one. Because no one year before did it in a nice way, in a simple way, and the way it should be, really. As simple as that. So I hope that so many people at the option you would listen and do, <laughs> not doing a book of 30 minutes for lasagna, which is going to be like, he really misleads. You know, this is, uh, I take my responsibility again when I'm saying that. You cannot really take lead on a culture of people or a culture of cooking, like Italy, okay, and make it so simple, so easy, like everybody can do that. It's not acceptable, I think. If the Bolognese, that's our rules. A Madrichan, that's our rules that we make it. If 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 if, if, uh, if uh, Alfredo is not in time, then <laughs> disagree. <laughs> I think what's really beautiful about Italian Italian regional cuisines is that you can have the concept of a matriciana, but every cook makes it his or her own, and you are immediately connected to the cook because of the choices that they make in their kitchen, whether it's their family tradition or the evolution of tradition. So what I actually really love, even though I'm not like a super fan of Krakow's version of Amatriciana, for example, uh, what I love is that we, are, we have the right to personalize these things. It doesn't make them less Italian, per se, which is why we can produce Italian dishes outside of, outside of Italy, which is why we can embrace the sensibility of certain Italian sensibilities outside of Italy. No, but you know, well, well, yeah, fine. I mean, creativity, as the last person can argue that, because I'm, I'm a chef, I like to create things, but if a matrician is made out of guanciale, pecorino, black pepper, tomato, <coughs> best ingredient you have to use. Mm. If you want to put tomato first, or after, or cheese first, and after, and the, re and the result is good, that's your problem. But that's some of the recipe you need to be respected. Mm. If bolognese is made out of three cups three of meat, that's the rule has to be. Mm. That's what I think. Why are we, tra why are we trapping a, a recipe <coughs> in amber because it didn't erupt from a, a single place, yeah. but actually is the influence of various... Yeah. Can I just ex expand on this? Because um, uh, in case people haven't noticed, Kate, Kate is actually uh, from New Jersey. Um, <laughs> and um, there's a lot of Italians there. I, I want to I touch on, on, the, on how Italian food has traveled with the various waves of immigration. So I remember uh, being invited to an Italian-American family for Sunday lunch, and I had something called Sunday gravy, mm -hmm. uh, which is sometimes called red sauce and that. And I, I, I can see that there's a link between that and the ragù napolitano. They were originally from Campania and so on. So maybe you can touch on a few Italian-American recipes, how they've changed. And um, you, know, you, you, see, you, you see it well rec recreated in some 
like the Sopranos, for instance. I mean, they were, they were quite. Very child, yeah. Yeah, but very authentic um, eating habits. I thought there, and I've, I've seen them yeah, myself. Yeah, and, and I think that there definitely is. There's a, there's a regional Italian American. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cuisine as well. If you visit Philadelphia or uh, Staten Island or Chicago, you find manifestations of usually Southern Italian cuisine that was developed because people who never owned restaurants moved to the United States and worked in food service developed their own customs with influence from their their family traditions. But what's super interesting to me, I mean, I'm trust me, I love my my Sunday gravy and the red the whole red sauce thing. Although in Rome, I sparsely <laughs> um, season my pastas at home in New Jersey, I really, really love on the, on the sauce. But what's fascinating to me right now is that in places like San Francisco, um, Chicago, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, and New York in particular, you find a sort of new Italian cuisine, um, which is produced by men and women who have, who have spent time working in Italy, and if not, then at least very devoted to the history of Italian cuisine and see it as an evolving approach or sensibility to food. So you can visit a place like, for example, Del Posto in New York is perhaps a good example of this, where um, Chef Mark Ladner and his team are producing things that sort of, they feel Italian in a way. The pastas that they make are traditional forms, but perhaps the fillings don't have an analogy in Italy. Yet there's an approach to sourcing what ingredients they deem are the best at the at the Green Market in Union Square as they sort of imagine the most pristine uh, Italian recipe would be executed. Um, there are spectacular examples of Neapolitan-style pizza being produced in Jersey City, where there are really, really intelligent people who are sourcing ingredients, which perhaps in a Neapolitan pizzeria would not even be possible because of the price point, but they're able to execute things with the highest, highest quality materials because they're serving a different audience. I mean, I, I, encur- I encourage us to, to talk about it, Italian-American cuisine as both a sort of 100-year-old tradition as well as one that's mm-hmm. constantly changing even today. True. I mean, Francesco, you, you, you spent a lot of time in Asia, <coughs> and you opened Italian restaurants in, in Asia, Yeah. and I think you discovered some parallels. I mean, I remember you talking to me about uh, uh, colatura and fish sauce and then some, some of these things. So what, what, what's your view about that from your travels and so on? He's, I mean, some of the ingredients you can use uh, for Italian cuisine. I'm not sure about this modern Italian cuisine they do in America, to be honest. But of course, I mean, not to get uh, against what Katie said, but I'm an Italian cook, an Italian chef in London. I had to kick my 
integrity have to be pure Italian. When I see chicken, <laughs> chicken tikka masala pizza, you know, I got <laughs> revolted, to be honest. But it's, it's me. People love it, you know, mm. because I'm one of these uh, coke out to be at same things. But if you do like um, spaghetti vongole, for example, which I try with the, you know, with it together with the rather than parsley, mm. use a lemon, lemon zest and coriander, it works pretty well. It's not something I will put on my menu, but if I'm at home and want something mm. different, I'll probably do. If I do my, like, uh, my um, spaghetti gaglio, olio and, and peperoncino, I usually put some uh, colatura di alici, sancho with water, or anchovies, I try with the fish Thai sauce. It works pretty well. But it's not something I would propose in my recipe, <laughs> if that makes sense, mm. to be sure. I mean, there's a lot of things you can use. And then the chili in Thailand, for example, in Bangkok. I mean, I'm calabrese. You know, if I don't put chili in my pasta, I've got to put salt or pepper. So it's very, and it works very, very well. So some things you can really use, but we should respect all the different culture, especially the Italians at the moment, the UK, yeah. you know, yeah. but we don't agree much. I mean, the, the, the different waves of immigration, I mean, people forget that there were, there were huge movements of population, millions of people. I mean, it's estimated there's 60, 60 million people in the world of Italian origin. That's, I think, the number I read. But, you know, people think very much about the US, but what about South America? I mean, I'm, I was struck the first time I went to Buenos Aires that there were huge parts of the city where no one spoke Spanish, they spoke Italian. And I experienced on the 29th of each month, the day of the gnocchi, the tradition. That, I don't know where, where they, they, they basically serve gnocchi in the restaurants and there's a coin underneath there on one of the plates. And when you have a Milanesa in Argentina, it's gonna be made with beef. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't have veal. But you, you wouldn't see that in, in, mm. in Italy. I wanted to chip into this discussion about rules because I, I hate the rules being broken as well. I'm quite I'm anal about. I'm rules. quite anal about that. And, and, I, and I wanted to, in the process, to make an argument actually in favour of the existence of Italian cuisine. It's clearly nonsense to talk about a single Italian cuisine if by that you mean a single menu. You know, any country where you can get goulash in the Dolomites and couscous in Trapani, you know, we're we're in different food worlds. Um, But there are many things, the the sort of syntax of the the menu, antipasto, primo, secondo, dolce, and so on. And I think this sense of rules as well about, you know, you don't put cheese on fish, you don't put cheese on mushrooms, you know, many people believe in. You don't, you know, have a cappuccino after about half past ten in the morning and so on and so forth. This, the, these certain recipes may have to be made in certain ways, although, of course, we've already talked about the dis- number of disagreements there are about those ways. I think that sense of rules is really important. It's one of the defining traits of Italian food culture, along with what I've said about the city things. And I think the two are linked because it's really about manners. It's about, you know, it reminds me of the, you know, the great Renaissance uh, uh, manners book written by Giovanni della Casa, the, the Galateo. Where he gave you know famous rules like you know never blow your nose and then look in the handkerchief <laughs> as if jewels had come out of that, um, which is, is uh, something I've tried to obey all the rest of my life since reading that as a student. But it's and and he was writing it of course because 
it was about maintaining an identity and a sense of self and a, creating a prestige and an aura around yourself in a court environment, in the Renaissance court. And there's some element of that, I think, in this Italian obsession with rules around food. You wipe your mouth after taking a mouthful before the glass goes to your lips and things like that. We associate that with a, a sort of upper-class eating aesthetic, and it's much more... It's percolated much further down, much earlier, historically speaking, and I think in, in, in Italy. And I think it's to do with that business of identity and how food is a powerful way of saying who you are, not just in, you know your provenance, where you come from. And I, I would prefer, I wouldn't talk in terms of regions because the regions, a lot of them are a recent invention. And, you know, there's no such thing food-wise as Campania until very recently. Naples was the capital of a kingdom and sucked in resources from across the kingdom. Cities and their hinterlands are really what we're talking about. And, and that's where this sense of you know, this inv identity investment in food and the rules surrounding it and in doing it the right way comes from. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that makes Italian food what it is. But, but isn't it the case, I mean, there's a little disagreement here between Katie and uh, Francesco that Italy is often um, described as being essentially conservative about food and, and so on, but, but the melting pot started maybe before other countries and the food culture developed and so on, but it's, it's still going on today. There's, there's, you know, our friend Stefano uh, with his uh, trapezzini. I mean, that's, that's, that's an amazing invention. I mean, maybe you, you want to talk about that. That to me is, uh, you know, I mean, he, when I spoke to him, he said he wanted basically to get young people to eat some of the traditional food, and he sort of packaged it in, a, in I think, an amazing way. Maybe We have, we have a lot of examples. I mean, but... Of course, I live in Rome, so this is where I can provide the most uh, insight. But it's a, a city of 4 million people with a 43% youth unemployment, which is, is really crippling to the food economy, uh, particularly in the past decade. So Stefano Caligari, Sergio Esposito, and others have, have introduced this, and I keep referencing this tradition and evolution, but a really clever way of delivering food to people on a budget who still crave home-cooked meals. Um, so the trapezino is quite brilliant. Uh, the word combines tramezzino and pizza. Tramezzino are those little white bread sandwiches, the delicious things served at a peritivo or a bar with the crust cut off. Um, and um, Stefano's invention simply fills fluffy white pizza bianca with um, dishes that are either native to Rome or native to sort of the colonial era. So everything from coda la vaccinata, braised oxtail with celery and tomato, or um, tongue with green sauce. Um, the green sauce is an influence, by the way, of the Piemontese who settled in Rome in the late 19th century. He even serves zigani, uh, an, an East African stew, as a nod to the colonial era of the fascist era. So, and that's just one, one example of taking an accepted form or forms, blending them in a way that's incredibly relevant um, and completely accessible to a large range of people who are not necessarily eating at home or what they're eating at home is not fully traditional um, for a variety of economic reasons. Thank you. Well, I, um, I think now's a good time maybe to open up questions from the audience. Uh, let's see who's going to be brave enough for their first question. 
Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask about something you've not talked about, which is risotto. Um, whenever I travelled in Italy, you could eat pasta everywhere, but risotto seems quite specific to the north. Is there a reason why it's not travelled quite so well, or am I making that up? Well, it's, it's grown in the north. It's grown on basically the area around Vercelli, classic rice paddy uh, area. And so it was part of the, it was the staple carb uh, in those parts of the world. But I disagree. I mean, it, it, it has spread nationally. It's not as popular in the south, but you can, you know, you can find it. And, and, and the reason for that is... Uh, Mussolini, basically, the, the, in, in as much as it's a national dish, uh, it's because there was a huge drive for rice consumption um, in the late 20s and 30s because of the autarky policy. Basically, Mussolini w wanted to stop Italy importing so much grain. Italy has to import a hell of a lot of its food and always has done, you know. Stop importing so much grain, which was the main item on the balance sheet, the main expense on the balance sheet. And it became even more difficult when Italy faced sanctions after it invaded Ethiopia. And it needed to produce more home-produced foods, homegrown foods. And rice was one of them. There was a lot of it. So there was absolutely hammering um, propaganda campaign. Housewives given free recipe books with uh, risotto al nero di seppie or whatever it is in. It was adapted in that period to areas, cuisines, regions that it, that it hadn't really been known in before. So in as much it is, as it is a national uh, dish, uh, I think we owe it to that period. John, wasn't it the case that um, certainly the modernists and uh, well, during the fascist era that pasta was seen as a sort of uh, very in a very negative light and uh, discouraged even? That, that was the uh, Futurists had a campaign yes, against right. it. I mean, that was one of their, I mean, it was a Obviously, polemical gesture. I don't think it was meant at all seriously. Um, okay. uh, before I pass over to Francesca, I think one of the reasons you may not find it in as many, many restaurants is to, be, uh, to make risotto properly, it takes at least 20 minutes, I think. That, that's absolutely yeah. true. So from, yeah. an, from an economic point of view, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a problem for some restaurants. Uh, maybe they don't even have the skill set to do it. But unfortunately, there's many restaurants where they pre-make risotto. They pre-cook, which is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Really. And uh, so if you get a risotto quickly, mm. you know that something is amiss. So uh, Francesca can go into a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah definitely. But um, there is some rice dish and recipe on South Italy as well. I mean, if you think about Naples area, uh, you find that Sartu di Riso, but you will definitely not find this in a restaurant. It will be very, very difficult to find it in a mm. restaurant. If you go, for example, to Puglia, you find the riso cozze patate, which is like a kind of a paella, if you want, which is rice, uh, mussels, and potatoes. Top. <coughs> if you go to Calabria, when you feel unwell, your mom gives you boiled rice. That's the only way we eat it, really. Say that, though, mm -hmm. in the south of Italy, between Calabria, Basilicata, and Puglia, we grow and we produce the 40% <coughs> of cannaroli rice, which is going all around Italy. Just, you know, but you know, mm. keep pushing, go to Milan, go Antica della Trattoria della Pesa or Rome, and ask for your risotto, Subuco, you love. You're just gonna wait 20, 25 minutes. Mm. Yeah. Okay, if they say, if they send you the risotto in five minutes, it's not proper risotto, that's for sure. Mm. <laughs> that's the place where Ho Chi Minh was a waiter, isn't it? Yeah. For a while. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was just wondering whether Italian-Americans, or if not Italian-Americans, then some kind of Italian-American cultural mythology 
has combined purchasing power and nostalgia in a way that's had a corrupting influence at all, or if it has something to do with this nostalgia that you've been describing as kind of purely domestically rooted in economic factors? That's a, that's a very good question. I think the, the dish that we talked about, which was the uh, ragu napolitano, uh, changed in America because of, uh, you know, people had more money and they put more meats. So if you look, if you look at the, the difference, in the, there's less meats in the traditional Neapolitan one. And then there's this addition of meatballs. Um, so I just want to make sure I understand the question correctly. So the, the concept that the Italian-American, the, the development of Italian-American cuisine has had a corrupting nature on food production? No, I mean more like in terms of purchasing power of people sort of going to Italy or expecting certain thin things. You know, a kind of timeless Italian origin for their own culture. You know, sort of a little bit like um, the way um, sort of Irish and fantasies of Irish origins for American travelers have, according to a lot of people, you know, had a quite corrupting influence there. I'm thinking that there are perhaps some examples of like restaurants and touristic centers which might, which might uh, cater to the demand of travelers producing dishes that aren't authentically rooted in that city, but delivering the food that the visitors want. I think it's definitely changed the, like the, the patterns of dining in the center of many cities, Milan uh, and Rome and Venice in particular, by providing much wider range of foods that aren't necessarily in a, on a typical city menu. Um, offering food in hours that are not traditional, offering cappuccino after pasta. Just mm. a few examples. Mm. There are dishes that have come into Italy that are sort of notionally Italian. For example, olive oil in a bowl with balsamic vinegar. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. We did that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have the, the best olive oil and aceto balsamico tradizionale, why would you mix them up? Well, no, nobody's, nobody's <laughs> serving olive oil and, yeah. and, and balsamic. They're using Ponti balsamic vinegar, uh, yeah. not any yeah. delicious, mm -hmm. amazing historical production. Um, but I've seen that in tourist restaurants. Of, cor mm, of course, yeah. But, um, yeah, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That I'm just overcome by... <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, I mean... Historically, the influence of American uh, resources on the Italian diet is, is entirely positive. You know, the millions of Italians dragged out of poverty by the experience of, of migration to the Americas. You know, I'd read, uh, you know, reports from prefects who were like the eyes and ears of the Ministry of the Interior in, on, on the ground. And Italy reporting with it in indignation from Calabria that uh, peasants were coming back from America and actually eating meat. Who the hell did they think they were? Because they, um, and they were now literate as well and transformed lives, had money to invest in a bit of land and so on. It's a bit tough to give the Americans a hard time, I think, for their influence. I mean, but, you know, and the Italians have always been compl complained about the tourist threat to their eating habits. Pellegrino Artusi, the great late 19th century sort of codifier of Italian food. Um, that was the only one, was it? Uh, sorry? It was the only one, and the only. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's uh, a bit of a hero of mine. And anyway, he, he breaks off in one or two restaurants to have a go at the restaurants that 
chop their tagliatelle up so that foreigners don't have to sort of <laughs> struggle with winding around their forks and that, that kind of thing. And he thinks, you know, they're destroying our traditions, and this is in 1891. You know, so I think Italian food will survive. The addition of um, truffles to Italian food, would that then make it an Italian thing? And who was the first person to use it? truffles in food? I mean, it's, it's always seen as a, an Italian embellishment to beautiful food, but is it actually of Italian origin? I think if you, if you look at um, the French, I'll bring them up again, they, they, they use a lot of truffles. Yeah. But the white truffle of Alba, I think, is something that... Didn't the, the, didn't the ancient didn't Romans use, have them? I, don't, I, don't, I think the French had been used before, and there was the perigord, the black truffle. Yeah. It was not definitely shaving on pasta. It was used mm. for terrains, galantine. Mm. It was used for lobster, for gelatine, and stuff like that. It sometimes used to be cooked like a, a normal potato under the hashes, and then yeah. eaten like that. Then Italians, they, they find this white truffle from Halba, and of course, it goes on pasta, but still, those days, I struggle myself, I'm a chef, which you charge 50 bloody pounds for a bowl of pasta. How mm. people can, you know, come like three times a week and spend yeah. 50 pounds for a pasta for shop. Mm. It's quite amazing. I mean, for me, it's good, it's business. Still, <laughs> still I yeah. find quite, oh my God. Mm. Those days, I mean, 50 pounds for a pasta. But do people expect you to use truffles? When, when you talk about truffle, it's like you're talking about a Rolex, you talk about Prada, of course. Mm. I'm going to indulge myself. And why not? Mm. To, what ex to what extent do you think that the sagre and the, the sort of invention of these country fairs that celebrate truffles in the northern part of Italy have, have played into that? Has that, has that sort of not at all, I think. homegrown Italian... Not at all, because on the sagre you pay, you pay very, very little. And if you come to the UK on where you come from, American stuff, you find that truffle is like expensive things. But Sagra, usually you don't get uh, the 300 gram truffle you show on the table. Those small nuts, little one, that you're shaving on your polenta and stuff like that. So it doesn't have a, I mean, I don't know what you're trying to say, but it's not a big impact in the business we go in the UK for truffle. You know, and then as you probably know better than I do, truffle is a different price. And when you go up to 300 gram, you don't pay by grams anymore, you pay by pieces. You auction your truffle, which is a bit different though. So sagra is like, uh, the word sagra, I don't know if you, if you know what that means. It's like a uh, uh, town little uh, cooking uh, festival where everybody can have food for little money. That is, it doesn't compare with the expensive. Yeah, there's a lady with a beautiful cap. From Sicily. From Sicily. <laughs> a coppola. Okay, first I have to admit, I'm American. <laughs> supposed to say, hello, American. <laughs> an AA meeting. Um, first, I want to say, I, before my question, I love this panel. We've got the bookends of the, the uh, two pasty Britons. Love you. <laughs> and, and then we've got the, the guy who says he's Italian, but he looks like a hot Spaniard to me. And then to me, the only true Italian, you know, the New Jersey girl. So, yeah. Love you. Um, so, fabulous panel. Here's my question. Um, I understand... Italy had uh, a recent, compared to the U.S., unification, and there's all the regional cuisines. And, and you guys are making fun of the French, which, I, I, it's fun. We didn't. I'm not. No, a little, a little, a little. I mean, I mean not yet. No. <laughs> not yet. Okay, but let's make fun of the French. So why don't, um, and I guess my question is to you, ma'am, um, the rose. 
between the thorns. <laughs> um, my question is to you, why isn't there a movement in Italy to say we have regional cuisine and so we're going to adopt the French methodology of we're going to patent champagne and nobody can use this unless... Does that well, question think, make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are analogies to the French appellations for wine and, and certainly for food. Um, and starting in, uh, I think the first DOC uh, law was passed in 1969, um, but the first DOCG was maybe a bit later. So there is a sort of modeling on the French system of wine appellations, but because there are 20 or so regions, each region in a way sort of works autonomously when it comes to uh, recognizing wine appellations. And similarly, um, for food, we have DOCs, uh, sorry, DOPs, yeah. IGPs, IGTs, a huge range of things which um, have become more and more common, uh, especially in the past decade, 15 years or so. Um, so indeed, we do have some analogies like this, and they've been, um, I think they've been extremely successful in promoting certain um, certain types of food abroad. And we can call them, I think, brands in a way. It's not necessarily the corporate brand, but like Mozzarella Bufoli di Campania is a codified, it's a law. In yeah. order to market or sell something labeled as such, the cheese must be produced in a very specific way. Um, the the efficiency with which some of these characteristics of food are communicated really varies, and there's some regions that simply are sort of better off from a communication or fiscal standpoint to promote their local products. Um, and so perhaps that has something to do with the, the amount that, that people outside of hyper-regional areas know about them. It, it's something that Italy's cashed in on hugely, in fact. I, I don't agree with the assumption of your question that, that Italy has to catch up. I think I'm right in saying that Italy has more of these, uh, you know, European recognized yeah. codified products than, yeah. than, than, than France does yeah. now. But, uh, but also there's another layer which is slow food, which we haven't really talked about because mm. they, if you look at the Presidia, there's, there's lists, you know, of two, 200, maybe 298 products. Some of them are endangered species of um, animals, but also individual ingredients. So it's it's out there. I mean, you know, but but it's been done more on a global. These, these are global standards. My question is more about regional recipes than ingredients. I'm, I'm asking if you adopt the French way to sort of I, I patent is the word that my business brain is coming up with, like a, a regional recipe, or is that not possible? Can do. I think they're trying to get pesto recognized in that way, for example. Um, yeah, there's, there's also um, an official recipe for ragu bolognese, which you have to Right. No, oh, that's right. Then and then there's a, a pizza, yeah. pizza napolitana as well. Yeah. Which is, uh, but still, it's not really codified as, yeah. as the mm. French did yeah. many, many years ago. Yeah. That's yeah. why they're much more powerful in terms of food, let's be honest, mm. as we are. And I mean, of course, we've got lots to give away as well. There is no mm. codification. Mm. A part of Pellegrino Artusi, we said before, that it shows that tiramisu comes from north rather than south, or Parmigiana, Sicilian, mm. or not. It's still like kind of random. This is the problem of Italy. The nice thing about Italy, but also the problem of Italy. How is Italian food viewed by Italians in Italy? So, example, are there common uh, dishes that somebody living in Cosenza, for example, would would understand and appreciate the same uh, as somebody living in Pordenone, 
the, 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 other, the other side of the country. And of course, Italian food is regional, um, and, and I know there is a history of it being very regional. Is that still the case today? Well, I think that... It, sorry. Yeah, Francesco. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, they're much more familiar, that's for sure. Uh, also, I think people did come, if I may, much more open. If you ask, uh, you ask my grandfather, you give him polenta, I say, what is this? <laughs> if uh, my, pa my father had polenta, I say, ah, oh, that's pretty good. If I go give polenta to my little kids in Calabria, for example, they enjoy polenta. I think people, they really now open their mind about that. Before, it was much more something like, uh, I'm Calabresa, I'm not eating North Italian food. Mm -hmm. I'm North Italian, I don't eat that stuff mm -hmm. they eat downstairs. But now people, they're much more, much more open. People that. have learned. And also supermarkets, <laughs> all this, you know, all this branding things that now, I mean, I mean, you find anything you want. I think people are much more hopping now, yeah. that's for sure. People, people have learned a kind of cities. food tourism within Italy. You know, when Italians travel, they want to taste the local exactly. dishes from whichever city or town, whatever, that, that they go to. And that's something... So they're not as precious, perhaps, No, no, no. no but you, you'll find that Tuscan restaurants in Rome and in Milan and mm. in, other, in other big cities, and then there's the phenomenon of the Neapolitan pizzerias, which are... Mm. You know, you go, to a you go to a pizzeria in Parma and you have fritto misto and a pizza. Mm. And it's cooked by people that are ethnically from Naples. Do you think there's a sort of bigger opportunity now for the south of Italy in terms of, of its food to actually drive some economic development in the south? What are your thoughts on it? Is it would it be a better time for the south or it's still, still very challenging? It, it's still very, very challenging. I mean, you know, we, as we've been saying this evening, the the selling point of Italian food is is the local nature of these products and their territorial provenance. And you've got a big problem if that place is what they call in Italian an area of high mafia density. Uh, and a you know classic case in point is mozzarella di bufala from the the Agro Aversano, north of Naples, which is this sort of you know strip just in from the coastline going down from Mondragone, which is the classic territory buffalo milk mozzarella, and there have been a number of scandals associated that with organised crime infiltrating it, some of them blown out of all proportion and blue mozzarellas and you, because criminals are criminals and they, you know, they don't care about the tomorrow of buffalo milk mozzarella brand. And that's, you know, they could go the way of Volkswagen if they, you know, if they're, they're uh, not careful. You know, you've really got to, be, brand custodianship is something really, really difficult and really challenging in, in the South. That said, I've met some fantastic entrepreneurs in the South, young uh, pasta maker. He calls himself an artisanal pasta maker, but it's a factory, basically. A small, not the giant Barilla places, but um, in Gragnano, uh, you know, the sort of one of the historical homes of, of uh, dried pasta making. Amazing guy who's put up, had to, you know, he, he's, he's, just to give you some idea of the difficulties, he opened a restaurant uh, in Gragnano to, you know, as part of his sort of food, growing food empire. It took him nine years to get through all of the red tape and the, you know... Bureaucracy. Yeah, the bureaucracy and the corruption and whatever. 
That's why people leave. That's why the best talents in the South are leaving, and it's tragic. Um, so the situation is still very, very difficult. And, you know, food may be part of the answer. Sorry. Well, I like to be a little bit more positive mm. than that. I, I come from Calabria, and I'm here with you. And uh, mm. after Nduya, I'm, I'm, I completely agree with what you're saying as well. That, uh, I'm trying to bring some bergamotto in UK. Mm. Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it's not like there is a mafia thing. It's, you, know, you know, sometimes it's part of this people's future. They need to pay someone. It's like, you know, it's like your insurance. It's like, this sometimes stops things to go. I mean, for example, if you get like a, a one kilo bergamot, a one pound fifty on the tree, okay, then you have to find someone who should go on and pick it up. You have to find the caporalato, we're saying in South Italy. Someone which she controls, who's going to go and pick. <laughs> Okay, and the price, the cartello of the price as well, how much you're going to charge. So for £1.50, when the tree comes to £10 a kilo in London, how much you're going to sell a bloody bergamot? How much you're going to charge for... This is what the obstacle is, mm. I think. But in terms of produce, in terms of... I mean, it's easy when Francesco goes in TV, uh, BBC, there's a cook's winduia, everybody wants a bit of duya. That's easier. But to make it real, to make this like sustainable, you know what I mean, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot. And the people mentality is a still focus. Don Tommaso, Don Vincenzo, they're still there, they're always going to be there. Mm. But for young people like you and me, they find the power and say, you know what, let's move the other way, let's try to fight a bit, maybe you can. But it's still very high risk and there's still a long, long way to go, I would say. I thought you were going to be optimistic. Severe. <laughs> 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 I bought the Duya on and it's serious on thing. He's stuff. And there are lots of, I've got a few friends on the room here, they've been with me in Calabria and they understand exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. And also, they're, they're the other fantastic thing about South Italia, say, okay, they give you, for example, the best produce today. After two days, it's okay. After four days, ah, oh, come on, in England, they don't know anything about food, just mm. whatever they want, mm. you know, it's fine. <laughs> and you find, oh my God, how are we going to do that? But yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite tough. But again, let's all, let's bob up for this. You talk about your family, your mother, and I love your respective tradition. Who are the great women who are cooking in Italy today? Where are they? Great cooking, the great women, the cooking? The female chefs. Who should we be looking at? Oh, Where are they? What should I do? I mean, like, you want to come and cook with me? I mean, not, yes. A, I mean, you know what? I, 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 very interesting. I was doing who this I be? yesterday about my HR lady. She looks after my new team and stuff, and uh, I told them I want as much girls as I can. Not because I'm uh, one of these uh, Italian or hot Spanish like them, because they make a different feeling. If you open my book, you see my mom there, yeah. my home there, my mother-in-law there, and they're the best chefs I have had in my life, the best teacher. If you see some of my interviews, interview, wherever, I keep saying, Where is which one was the chef uh, in most inspire you? I always say my grandmother, which is true. I wish. I had a mama making fresh pasta at Sartoria before I opened. It's impossible. Nobody wants to smoke so many hours. And the health and safety is, I mean, it's quite difficult to be honest. But you know, having lots of ladies in my kitchen, uh, that'll be amazing. So there's a gender difference in cooking style? There is. And also sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, we got the attitude being, I mean, we got the reputation, not the attitude. Being a chef, we are bully, we are aggressive, we are not all the same. And you know, if you hear this, if you got, if you girls in the kitchen, you know, you believe or not, the oh. same smell was down. <laughs> Katie, there, there, there are a number of um, top 
female chefs with uh, Michelin stars and restaurants. And there's a three Michelin star chef. Name them. <laughs> I can't remember her name now. She won. She was given an award actually. The, it's it's yeah, a bit patronising actually. There are, there are dozens of women in, yeah. in uh, who run a t uh, Michelin rated kitchens. We have several. We have several in Rome, um, and we have men and women from all over the all over the world who run spectacular kitchens uh, in Italy and produce authentic food. Um, I mean, certainly in in Campania, we can look to uh, Rosanna Mazziale in Rome, Christina Bauerman. Um, but I mean, certainly women are minority in the sort of the the fine dining kitchens. There's no doubt about that, but that's a that's a universal fact all over the world. Yeah, but I think I think there are more Michelin star female chefs in Italy than there are in the UK. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. My 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 question is a little bit silly, so I'm glad it's the last one. But we're all here. We love Italian food. I'm just desperate to get out of the door and get some pasta. But um, um, uh, I wonder, will there ever be a day in Rome? Maybe Katie can answer this at the, uh, the Rome Review of Books, where you will all be invited to answer the question is, is there such a thing as British cuisine? Absolutely. There's a lot of things that need to happen before that. We need to open the Rome Review of Books. Um, but I think there's never been a more interesting moment in, in sort of modern times with the exchange of information that we have, with the amount of travel that we're able to mm -hmm. do to experience British cooking in all of its regional glory. I hope that day comes. I really, really desperately <laughs> want so much happens. Mm -hmm. I suppose what I'm asking is do Italians look outward as much as they seem to be looking inward because they're, they're obsessed with oh. the sort of when it comes to when it comes to yeah. dining. Yeah. Stefano, the, the chap that we, we talked about who invented this new way of packaging dishes, um, he also has the best pizzeria in Rome. And one of the pizza he has on, on there it has got Blue Stilton and port. It's yeah. called Il Greenwich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think it'll happen too. And on the same, same day, we'll see big, fat, whiskery pigs flying over the top of the Dome of St. Peter's. On yeah. the ball uh, yeah. uh, I, 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 think, I think John may be wrong in this. In this <laughs> you've got, there's, there's a lot of British uh, Interesting British things. Uh, rugby's a huge game now in, in, in Italy. Mm. Um, if you look at the craft beer movement, it's, it's massive mm. in Italy now. Yeah. That's true. And look at the names they're using for their, for their craft beers. They're very influ influenced by the mother country for, 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 for beers. I think, I think you're, you're probably going to the wrong places, John, I think. Yeah. Mm. Come hang out with me in Rome. Oh, okay. Um, yes, I drink some beers. Yeah. I mean, also, like, we're in a moment in, in London where there's a tremendous number of young people who have left for economic and other reasons and will return. I see them returning and they're bringing the, they're bringing the flavors that they found abroad with them and opening, you know, craft beer pubs with like a whiskey corner. So kind of rule it out. And when that fabulous event comes, we'll drink some delicious things, we'll eat some snacks, <laughs> and those pigs will fly. <laughs> okay, well thanks everyone for coming. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, quite a lively debate and appreciate your questions. And uh, hopefully we'll do something similar soon, uh, maybe in Rome. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk 
or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.